Um, I'm going to keep it brief just because I want to get straight to hearing from the people we have with us today and um, I'll just give a little paragraph about what the this the series what the series this is part of is all about um, so this is our final session uh, for now uh, in the series on dissent with the Newton Green Meeting House with this series we wanted to ask ourselves a number of questions what is dissent which stories of dissent get told who is remembered and who is forgotten, which bodies are always considered dissenting, and how can we draw upon the lives of dissenters in the past in the ways we resist in the present. From the historical home of dissenters and abolitionists here in Newington Green, this series of talks aims to uncover histories of radicalism from the bottom up, finding inspiration in the past and hope in the present. Um, and so for this next, uh, this current, <laughs> Um, session today, which is on radical coalitions. Uh, the desire to have this specific event stemmed from a kind of tension that I often find in political organizing, uh, namely finding ways to build collective movement, movements of solidarity and a sort of shared um, impulse that don't then um, revert back to organizing behind uh, sort of categories that are themselves built upon uh, regimes of violence um, and namely thinking about how uh, example movements like trans sort of transphobic elements of feminist movements have managed to galvanize bodies in ways that actively work against their own liberation um, and I think this is a tension that's played out in lots of different social movements and also there have been some amazing ways to kind of move beyond these divisions and find forms of coalition building that still themselves uh, cater for the fact that people have uh, different needs and uh, different impulses uh, in the way they work. So um, I'm really excited to be joined by two amazing uh, organizers and writers uh, this evening and I'm just going to pass it straight over to our first speaker, Amar, um, who is going to talk to us about coalition building and the work they do. Yeah, um, hello everyone. Um, if you hear any point a piano or a child screaming, uh, it's because I'm in um, the only room with Wi-Fi at a cooperative festival called Search Action, so do forgive me for that. As a result of which, um, I'm going to be winging this just a little bit as well, because uh, internet's not ideal. So, um, so my perspective um, is that I'm, I come from the trade union movement, specifically um, organizing hospitality and fast food workers, most of them in South London, but also more broadly as well. And alongside that, I've been uh, a member, or I suppose an, an activist with lesbians and gay support the migrants um, for kind of a couple of years. And, I'm going to start a little bit with the, with the personal aspect of that, I suppose. Um, the, the theme for today is, is relatively broad, I suppose, with, with radical coalition building. And I was thinking a little bit about what it means exactly to break that down. And so for me, I think coalition building essentially can, can also be equated on some level, a micro level at least, to, to care work. To, uh, to what maybe pre-COVID we would have referred to as mutual aid, but maybe now that, that term has been a little bit tainted and a little bit compromised. Um, 
but the process of doing care work of being involved in it of, of sort of benefiting from that kind of mutual structure certainly in my experience is, is what i experienced as something that was radicalizing so as someone um, as a queer person of faith and a queer person of color um being you know coming out in the city away from my hometown um and not really having any, any framings for for politics i suppose outside of what was then the dominant discourses of i suppose we'd call it the neoliberalization of identity politics right so like um the attempts that happened i guess from certain liberals from marginalized communities to kind of really um minimize or kind of make available for consumption various identities and to individualize concepts of justice or reparations and to kind of separate those from any process of meaningful solidarity to separate it from kind of community or collective work and so i i came to lesbian to gay support the migrants probably in 2017 quite by accident um followed a cute person as it always started um and in that space, I found such a different articulation of, of what being queer could mean. And I found such a different articulation to the predominant, predominant representation narratives. And that was concurrent with me coming out in the city and concurrent with me finding a place of acceptance and support networks. And it was through that experience of solidarity and through that experience of care that, um, that I began to be radicalized in some sense, right? Um, and I think when we're thinking about radical coalition building, it, it can be useful to think about it in, at that kind of micro level as well, right? As something that is kind of, I, I was rereading uh, Lola Lefemi's um, Feminism Interrupted last week and, you know, a really simple point, but she, she talks about, you know, solidarity is a doing word. Um, and it sounds, it sounds so simple, but it's so, so true when it comes to, when it comes to thinking about how we organize and what it means to build a radical coalition it's it's complicated over a pandemic organizing austin via zoom to kind of get tangible senses of what that solidarity means um i think it's really really important that we really try and take to heart that solidarity sort of has to be more than if you're able more than a retweet or it has to be more than having the correct politics it has to be more than just kind of standing by someone um that action is, it is radicalizing. That action is what makes that solidarity meaningful and radical insofar as you know, you're able to do it. And obviously not everyone can do everything all the time too. Um, I guess a bit about LGSM just to, just to start with. So um, Lesbians and Gay Support the, Mi the Migrants was inspired by uh, Lesbians and Gay Support the Minors. I don't know if any of anyone here has seen the film Pride um but it's not an accurate retelling of of that movement because movements don't work with protagonists and main characters that's not how they sustain themselves um but you know it it, it was an example of, of queer history that was quite explicitly explicitly about solidarity um without necessarily expecting anything back you know that that, that phrase uh, solidarity is not a market economy it's it's a really good distillation of that idea and um, a group of queer people uh, in London decided, you know, you know, what is it about that, that that is reproducible? What is it about that that is worth preserving, that is worth remembering, but not archiving? Um, and, you know, this is this was in the wake of Theresa May's hostile environment. This was in the wake of 
um, a series of ongoing scandals that had only recently come to light in the mainstream regarding the treatment of migrants. Um, and uh, the, found, the founders of LDS migrants wanted, wanted to do something about it. And so that's sort of, that's sort of where it comes from. And I think that constituting that solidarity between marginalized communities is sort of, in a way, more of a radical process or more radicalizing than necessarily the, the stance that certain people take on things. I know it's hard to, to necessarily draw a concrete distinction between those things, um, but it really is the practice that, that makes it radical. And out of that practice of just simply showing solidarity, um, various different organizations and various different groups um, organically kind of cohere in certain spaces, in certain social spaces and online spaces. Um, and those infrastructures of care that are often informal get developed. Um, and I think that's kind of where the coalition building comes in. Like, I think it's, imp it's important to think about it, that like, often it's strategic that certain groups decide to align with one another, but more often than not, it's about seeing evidence for the work that happens and seeing how, you know, we can complement one another in that sense. Um, I kind of wanted to pivot here a little bit, I guess, and talk, talk a little bit about the, about the trade union movement. Because that's, uh, that's, that's kind of the other perspective from which I was radicalized as well. So I was um, a hospitality worker at a pub in South London, um, and we ended up unionizing uh, and going on strike. And again, as someone who at that point thought I had very like right on politics, it was that experience of actually having people turn out and put their jobs on the line for me and doing that for one another that was again, in and of itself, radicalizing and a form of political education that wasn't just about reading groups, a form that actually was really felt deeply. But at the same time, there's in the wake of COVID, I think there's a tendency to over romanticize the labor movement to a degree. Uh, th there's an attempt to kind of see any trade union organizing or any kind of trade union uh, a body as, as being in inherently radical. Um, and I was just kind of looking at hi historically the ways in which the trade union movement, which has always been about workers empowerment, has also um, kind of reified the existing uh, power dynamics to really um, further marginalized people that were most in need of, of trade union support. And so um, if you go back to like the, the 40s and 50s, for example, um, there was an effective color bar in most of the major trade unions in the UK. Uh, migrants were thought of as being scab workers. Uh, this is a familiar rhetoric, right? Supposedly undercutting native workers as sort of cheap labor. Um, and it was only when um, you know black and Asian workers in the '60s started organizing, uh, supported more by community organizations rather than trade unions or organizations like the Indian Workers Association, for example. Um, they had to organize kind of separately, and it's only with the rise of the National Front in the '70s um, and a series of like damning instances of mainstream trade union neglect that you begin to see a shift in the, uh, the TUC's official policy, uh, which was towards active anti-racism in theory at least. And so trade unions begin to sort of haltingly align themselves in practice with anti-racism. Um, but we know of course from 
the rhetoric of recent years. And we know from the way that resources are distributed within the labor movement, that that's actually functionally not the case all the time, right? So with the decline of trade unions more broadly since the seventies, larger unions have tried to appeal to, to BAME workers, but this is primarily in some sense at least been about shoring up a decimated membership. So under Blair, you had uh, Unison's worker participation migrant worker participation projects, you had UNITE's migrant worker support unit, um, and they did identify the need for proactive approaches to encouraging proportionate migrant participation, right, as well as a need to mainstream migrant issues and tackle workplace discrimination. And there were some really incredible uh, BAME trade unionists that were doing great work in forcing these issues to the fore. Um, but there was a sustained failure, nevertheless, to engage consistently with existing community groups that were already focal points of migrant organization. And at the same time, this was in the context in which the trade union movement was trying desperately to shore up its membership base, to increase its access to funds to a degree as well. Um, and so I think that complicates the narrative that, that maybe sometimes is quite, is told quite simplistically about, um, about the link between the, the official labor movement, at least in people of color and migrants. Now that's not to say that those coalitions haven't existed and those coalitions haven't been really, really vital. Um, but I think it's important that we really try and complicate these histories of like radical coalitions at the same time as we can take inspiration from them as well. Um, and I guess more, more recently, sort of in the face of, you know, the hostile environment of Windrush of, Castle cosmopolitanism and kind of you know, the hardening border, border regime. Migrants today in particular face some of the most exploitative practices of the gig economy. So it's been quite surprising to some that it's migrant workers that have been leading the nascent resurgence of union activity in the UK. Um, and while in particular campaigns, you've got support from the heavyweights of the TUC, primarily it's been the smaller base unions that have achieved a quite a heady string of successes over the last few years. Um, and they have championed an approach that embraces direct action, that embraces strikes, embraces sit-ins, it makes use of social media, um, but also it involves things like language classes, it involves um, bringing workers who might be from different backgrounds together and trying to do the work of community unionism and, co and, and really building relationships that way. And I think that's really been an important part of, of their success. Now, the base unions are often fetishized by many on the left, and they're not without their problems again. But they have succeeded where lots of TUC unions have met with less success. Um, and not all, not all migrant workers who are members of the unions who have been organizing necessarily all have what we might think of as radical politics, right? Um, what constitutes these campaigns as radical and radicalizing is a sustained effort to build local power through existing informal networks, in particular diaspora and, and community networks, centering marginalized communities in the organizing strategy as well and involving them, uh, and also being militant about it, being, being willing to put things on the line for people that the labor movement has consistently told us are unorganizable, right? And so, sorry, one second. It's been a long day. And I suppose when it comes to 
when it comes to broadening out, broadening out those coalitions beyond the labor movement, um, the past two years, I think, have seen like quite a resurgence in engagement with much more of what we might call the movement left. So like we might think of the fire brigade unions non-compliance with police directions to forcibly remove Palestine action organizers um, from Elbit Systems site in Oldham. So Elbit Systems is um, the largest private um, arms uh, company uh, in Israel, and they have 10 sites in the UK. Uh, Palestine Action organizers had occupied sites, police had asked the fire, uh, firemen to remove them, and after direction from the union, um, the firemen had refused, right? That's an example of that kind of solidarity uh, in action that goes beyond just the labor movement, which often can be quite inward looking. Another example that has perhaps a bit of a longer purchase is uh, the mobilizations that we've seen against the police crime sentencing and courts bill, um, which has seen basically every single group that we might think of as being on the radical left, uh, working alongside a lot of the more traditional trade unions as well to try to bring together um, and try and cohere some abolitionist movement. Um, it's not been without its problems. And I think this is where political education definitely comes in because when, when you're when you're constituting constituting a coalition thinking about what the end goals are are, in, are obviously incredibly important uh, at the same time there's a tension between that and the need to build a mass movement and bring as many people as you can with you and in those efforts you know organizers don't look to the labor party for example for support or solidarity like most MPs rushed to condone the violence in Bristol in March and like denigrate those that were the subjects of it. Um, and the MPs insisted on waiting until an investigation into police brutality had been concluded before condemning the protesters were like turned on by, the, by their colleagues. So, and it's notable that it was largely sociable women of color that resisted the rhetoric curated by the mainstream press. Um, but those generalizations along the lines of lived experience also have their limitations. It was also another woman of color, um, uh, Tangum Debonair, the MP, who um, asked for help identifying potential rioters online to the police. Um, and with the bill probably relatively soon um, about to make it into law, and in the, in the knowledge that the only way that it can be resisted is by making it unenforceable. That tension between the need to remain true to certain principles and to stay true to certain radical politics um, and the need to try to curate a mass movement um, is only becoming more acute. Um, there's been a lot of accusations thrown at various different organizing groups around Kill the Bill as being exclusionary or as being purist. Um, but the basis of organizing uh, from an abolitionist framing has to be a commitment to abolition and to viewing state violence on the streets as a corollary to the carceral violence of prisons and of detention centers. Um, you know, a broad church of organizations supported LGS migrants and supported Sisters on Cart and a bunch of the other groups uh, involved in, in the Kilbert coalition. But the ideological gap between Extinction Rebellion and uh, LGS migrants, for example, is not one that you can paper over with platitudes about the need for kinder policing by consent in the short term, or cause for blind unity against a common enemy. 
the success of any coalition is going to depend on its commitment to the politics of care and to the practice of care and community construction and infrastructure as much as to the politics of spectacle. Um, and I suppose I just, I just end by saying that for all the critiques that are levels at these movements, radicalism isn't an indulgence in these times of crisis. Um, it's very much a material necessity. Um, I think I'll end it there. I'm sorry if that was really rambling. As I said, my laptop crashed and I lost all my notes. So. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, I have a question for you, but um, I'll leave that till the end. Um, I think Rory, do you want to introduce Annie, or is that the, the plan now? Yeah, yeah, we're gonna we'll move over to Annie now if you're ready. Um, we yeah, I'm really excited to, to hear from you. Um, yeah, yeah, I think Annie has got motherly duties at the moment, but um, she's going to leave her camera off. I think she's going to join in by by audio. Great. Yeah, you hear me, all right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm really sorry. Um, yeah, we're doing our post-nursery routine. So if uh, door stands open, squealing, again, mommy duties. Um, thank you so much, Ruri, for inviting me. And thank you so much, Armandeep, for, uh, Armandeep, sorry, for, for your talk. It was really, really interesting. And I think there are kind of loads of areas of overlap. Um, I'll give you a bit of background about myself. Um, and that might give you some understanding of why I kind of approach this question the way that I do. So I grew up in Newham, the most uh, diverse borough in London, actually, whilst I was at secondary school, Newham became the first borough where there was no uh, statistical majority race. Um, also the poorest borough um, in London. And I had a whole series, I don't really talk publicly about my history, but I had a whole series of kind of challenges associated with that. But that was in the kind of deep heart of um, Blairite Britain. <laughs> and I ended up, um, when I was about to go to university, kind of really keen on getting a job that would mean that my family wouldn't have to go through the things that they did. And I got to university surrounded by quite posh people. And I realized I couldn't stomach uh, the idea of, um, going off to work in a place where I thought was doing harm to the world. And what was really interesting about my experience is that my radicalization happened whilst I was surrounded by people who typically ought not to be radical um, if we're to listen to Twitter. Um, and from that, I drew a really important lesson, which is that in everything, especially when it comes to political organizing, you have to foreground politics, people's sense of care and people's sense of duty above the categories that were given and so that's kind of the vein that I wanted to kind of speak to you all in. I think the first thing is to say and Amadeep finished uh, by talking about the limitations of this thing that we call lived experience as a frame for politics and typically when we think about coalition building whether implicitly or explicitly and largely because the left has been um, in decline as a mass movement for a long time, people don't necessarily think about coalitions between organizations, they think about coalitions like POC or BAME or, you know, coalitions of categories of people. And I wanna unpick that just a little bit. Um, I start from the starting point that every human interaction is bridging some, some sort of gap 
right? Um, we may share certain sets of experiences and they may be, we may be more likely to share those experiences because of the way that we're racialized by society, gendered, door slamming open, that's the baby, <laughs> racialized by society, gendered by society, et cetera, and so on and so forth. But the reality is oftentimes when we talk about lived experience and the way that we use lived experience in like the general discourse is based on the assumption that people of certain categories have certain experiences. And I had a few weird kind of examples of this and I'll give a trigger warning before I talk about it. I remember being on Clubhouse early on in the year and we were talking about black maternal health. And in that conversation, a few people came up on stage who were of mixed heritage um, and talked about their experiences of childbirth. The majority of the contributions on the stage had been from women who were what most would think of as like monoracial black um, heritage, talking about their fears of giving birth. And it was really interesting to see how the conversation kind of descended on the basis that the statistics for people who um, are of mixed heritage aren't necessarily as what one might say is bad, Terrible framing, obviously, as they are for people who are monoracial black. And what really struck me in this conversation is what completely got sidelined is the fact that if we're talking about racialized experience of childbirth, the people who had come up on stage who weren't of monoracial black heritage were people who had actually experienced that. They'll give another example. UK BLM um, decided to give a proportion of the money that they raised last year to um, the uh, United Friends and Family campaign. And that caused somewhat of a stir among certain circles. And I absolutely don't want to kind of overstate how much resistance there was to that. United Friends and Family campaign is a really, really important campaign, which has been custody uh, in the UK but it's not a black organization, it's a multiracial organization, but it's constituted of the families of people who have experienced police violence, who've been murdered whilst in custody um, by the state more or less. And part of that resistance again was on the basis of not having shared a lived experience with black people. But if we're thinking about this organization, they're constituted precisely of people who have had that experience of the, of the state. So if you bring that into a broader frame, for example, if we're talking about the US. In the US, if you're of the two lowest socioeconomic um, quintiles and white, you're more, more likely to be killed by police than if you're in the two highest socioeconomic quintiles um, and black. And so what we get is a much more complicated picture, obviously violence gets distributed within society and therefore also where opportunities for resisting those violences might arise. And there's a video that I um, always love to show. I can't show it now because it's actually 10 minutes long so I won't have any time to talk if I do do it. But I will drop the link once I finish speaking in the chat and it's called American Revolution to Bobby Lee. And it's of a Black Panther going into a meeting with a group of people who used to have the Confederate flag on their uniform. Um, they're called the Young Patriots. And they were some white folks from uptown who were organizing around questions of poverty. Um, and he was really nervous to go into that meeting. And once he got in, he talked about the need to move. You know, one of the people in the video even talks about how, you know, people from South and West uh, Chicago have a lot in common because they're all people who are racialized. 
um, they don't have so much in common with them. And so there's no basis for organization. And then Bobby Lee asked them, well, say what it is that's going on in your lives. What is it that you want to change about your lives? And once they start talking, the things that they start talking about are all too familiar to people of color, <laughs> many people of color, poor housing conditions, police brutality, um, you know, the general grinding experience of poverty, right? And what I'm trying to draw out from all of these examples is sometimes the things that we think are coalitions aren't actually coalitions. They're people who have a common set of aims with us. And sometimes the things that we think aren't coalitions are in fact coalitions. So the coalition that working class brown and black people engage in with bourgeois brown and black people. But I think even deeper than this is again, this question of foregrounding politics because my best friend is white, wealthy <laughs> man, tall, guess imposing, intellectual, academic, all of those things, but I've never seen quite as much of a love of humanity um, as I found in him. And I don't use that as an example to be like, oh, here's the exception, now you've got to go out and treat those, everyone who looks like him as if they're a friend. But what I mean by it is, that if we are to be objective in our analysis about what the problems are in the world and how we want to change the world, and many of the questions that we quibble over are actually strategic questions rather than principled questions, then somebody who has a political outlook which is geared towards liberation must always be foregrounded ahead of somebody who may, may share experiences with us, but isn't necessarily aligned with us politically. And, the thing I always like to say is that lived experience is not school. Lived experience can uh, harm us, hurt us, build a resentment for the system, but it, lived experience in and of itself doesn't teach us anything about firstly why we've experienced those things and therefore how we resist those things. And so that's why there's such an importance on, um, there's such an importance on political education. So to circle back, to something I said a little bit earlier on um, about every human interaction bridging a gap in some way. I kind of want to build some principles of what it might look like to build a radical coalition. So if we're saying that it is possible, firstly, to rethink who it is that we're in community with, and I think of community as a higher stage of um, political organizing in which you do have people with a shared set of experiences and a common commitment, but then it's also possible to build strategic coalitions, then what might the principles of those coalitions be? I think the first thing about those coalitions is that they have to be built on a basis of solidarity. Huey Newton wrote, and I'm black queer woman, Huey Newton wrote an article um, in 1971 on the gay liberation movement and the women's liberation movement. And I thought of that as such a striking example of how solidarity might work. It seems counterintuitive, but do bear with me. <laughs> so he writes in the article, well, what would cause homosexuality? Could it be bourgeois decadence? I don't know. That's verbatim what he says. But he says, one thing that I'm sure of is that the homosexual man in America quite possibly is the most oppressed. And what does that mean? It means if you have a set of principles, grounding principles, and you're able to identify where people are experiencing injustice and you're always inclined to resisting such injustice. You don't have to understand somebody's struggle. 
to stand in solidarity with them. You don't have to understand precisely what their day-to-day -day experience is to stand in solidarity with them. Now, today I think we're all a bit more au fait with queer issues, I would hope. But at the same time, we're constantly unfolding and realizing that there are frontiers of resistance that we hadn't ever seen before, right? And so if we use that as a guiding principle, solidarity as a guiding principle, then that means that we must always stand with the oppressed over the oppressor. We must always stand on the side of justice. The second is accountability. And I think Amadit kind of speaks to this when they talk about, you know, the earlier experiences of the uh, lesbians and gay support minors movement. You know, obviously the movie overstates the extent to which um, they're rejected by the mining community, but it's still important to recognize that some people we want to stand in solidarity won't necessarily want to stand in solidarity with us and won't necessarily want to fight for us. And I think that point that they made about how solidarity is not a market exchange is so important because the point is we give it, and I'll come back to this again towards the end of the talk, but we give solidarity because it's an our interests to give solidarity because it's in our interest to fight for a world in which everybody is free because injustice and unfreedom anywhere destabilizes all of our freedom and dehumanizes all of us. The third aspect of it that I kind of want to draw attention to, one second going back to my notes, the third aspect of it that I want to draw attention to is discipline, political discipline and you know that discipline means, I'll give an example, actually, that's a better way of articulating this point. So when the Palestine, when Gaza was unleashed, not too long ago, a whole bunch of bot accounts, etc., popped up saying weird stuff like um, Palestinians don't care about black people and also like talking about the Palestine, uh, Palestinian Lives Matter slogan as co-opting Black Lives Matter, right? Now we can talk about the long history, shared history of solidarity. One of, the favorite, one of my favorite examples to bring up is the fact that George Jackson, who I'm not sure everyone in the room knows who he is, but he was um, Angela Davis's main kind of uh, conversant um, in the 1960s and 70s. And he was a prison uh, radical revolutionary who really and if you do get a chance do read blood in my eye because i think it really it really shows just how far an abolition an abolitionist politic can take you but also in all of the breadth of humanity that that george jackson sits in but there's a poem that he um, is credited with writing and it was it was published in the black panther party's paper and that poem was actually originally written by a palestinian uh, political prisoner um, so there is this really long history of solidarity between the Palestinian um, revolution and the black liberation movement, right? And so political discipline looks like two things. I think firstly, political discipline looks like maintaining our, com our, our compassion and understanding of people's humanities. If we have a structural analysis, which means people are socialized, which tells us that people are socialized to behave in particular ways, people are socialized into misogyny, people are socialized into queer phobia, people are socialized into racism. We can't treat these things as individual personal flaws because what we do then is take away from our understanding of the structural dimension. 
But the second aspect of that political discipline is also being able to understand where there are opportunities to learn and grow and to give people opportunities to learn and grow. Every radical thinker from Fanon to even Marx that I aspire to, I look up to, um, starts from the starting point that there is something revolutionary about common struggle. And it's not simply that you draw your issues into conversation with each other, but it's actively the process of being on the barricades, being on the front lines together, in which you can get those experiences which allow you to see each other's humanity, which allow you to see each other as more than just the stereotype of what a white person looks like, more than just the stereotype of what a cishet man looks like, right? And I think beyond that, what we then get is a kind of root. The coalition form isn't simply an ideal in and of itself, though it's strategically useful to build coalitions at particular junctures to be able to achieve specific aims. But the coalition form is one step on the way to community, right? It's one step on the way to being able to understand ourselves shorn of the categorizations that were given by society. Um, and so I think at the heart of all of it is the capacity to look at another person and see a human um, and see somebody without all those categories. And I think that not all of us, actually, I'll be honest, I think none of us are there. None of us can be there until we live in a world in which we're all liberated, right? And that's what's so brutalizing about this world. It dehumanizes us because we're unable to see others' humanity. You know, it takes one to know one, all of that kind of stuff, right? Um, if you can't know another person's humanity, then how can you yourself sit comfortably in your own, right? And so all of this is to say that all the people who don't want to be in coalitions with us, all the people who don't want to resist with us, all the people who oppress us, the irony of it is that they are all dominated by the same system that we're dominated by and we fight for their liberation nonetheless right and so there is a higher community to which we can aspire there is a basis on which and this is really what I wanted to get at, you know with today the common languages of allyship the idea that I have my struggle you have your struggle and sometimes our struggles intersect and then we fight on that basis but the reality is even the struggle that I have that seems completely irrelevant to you is inextricably bound with the struggle that you people who are allies are also fighting for their own humanity as well and so what I kind of want to leave you with I don't know how long I've spoken for I hope I haven't spoken too long what I want to leave you with is to rethink the way that we think about coalition forms to rethink what we think of as the end of our politics we're so bound up in the election cycle or you know the next piece of legislation we have to resist that legislation there is a much bigger political goal at stake and that bigger political goal is the emancipation of all of humanity, right? And in that, we're gonna to need to build coalitions with people that we don't like. And we need to allow those coalitions with love and discipline and accountability to grow into community because the social relations of a society will determine how we respond to each other and whether or not domination exists. And so, yeah, I'll end that. I hope that made sense. <laughs> Thank you so, so much, Annie. That was really beautiful and stunning. And yeah, I'm very, very, very grateful for you to come and speak to us today. I'm so grateful to you as well, Amos. Um, it's been a really, 
that's been really great that's really cheered me up this um and kind of you know putting so much emphasis on the absolute necessity of liberation for all of us as like a kind of I feel like this is something I often come back to in relation to abolition is, is the notion that abolition is like the sort of governing affect behind at least how I perceive political organizing and it's also very much the bare minimum if we're gonna <laughs> it's, it's like that has to be the starting point um, and I guess if uh, I'm sure other people have questions as do I um, so I don't want to take up all of the remaining time but I would I would love if either of you could speak more about how how you kind of um, can conceive of abolition as a kind of way uh, for like I guess it's something that Amar kind of mentioned with like the trade union movement in that the trade union movement is great at you know bettering material conditions but still can rely on the existence of work as a concept whereas we need to also like constantly think about looking beyond uh, looking to a world where work no longer exists or at least doesn't exist in the way that we define it um so i don't know if yeah you could you could speak more about this kind of like looking beyond whilst also finding ways to materially better conditions i mean i'm a utopian so i'm always about looking beyond but um, yeah that's uh, that's also how my brain works um i mean i, I think one, one thing to to kind of bear in mind as well is that um the trade unions themselves um, are not where the trade union leadership, at least, is not where you actually kind of build those coalitions. Right? You can get trade union. Can you actually hear me, by the way? Cool. Uh, the trade union leadership or the bureaucracies or the representative bodies can kind of nominally form coalitions. They can maybe allocate material resources. They can maybe mobilize press, um, but the actual they're they are always going to be driven by the need to sustain themselves, which is entirely understandable, right? And I don't think it, it could necessarily be another way. But what that means as, you know, not just workers, I think it's really important um, that we have to move beyond the category of workers, not least because it completely just overlooks those who uh, don't work, those who are unemployed, those who are, you know, uh, unable to work as well. Um, the kind of coalitions that we have to build can intersect with like the labor movement and with other workers, but shouldn't be contingent on kind of those formal leadership structures. So an example is that um, after like the pub that I work at went on strike, we, we ended up setting up um, South London Bartenders Network. Uh, we, unlike unions, we don't charge a membership fee. We take on casework from anyone who needs it, whether or not they're in a union. Uh, it's just a group of people with vastly different experiences. You know, people that are university educated, people that like didn't go to school, people that uh, people of color, middle class people, working class people, like um, queer people, straight people. Like, there's such a whole range of individuals that we kind of classify as like workers, right? What we what we try to do in the network is we try and just like provide that community of support and once that community of support exists like action starts happening happening naturally um, and it's kind of you know it, it's all linked obviously to, to what Annie was saying as well which is that like as soon as those dialogues begin to happen and as soon as like some level of trust begins to establish like that political education that happens um, is not 
that political education that happens is not separate from the from the kind of social bonds that form that to a degree like one and the same you really realize that like our struggle is one and the same because you feel that it's one and the same right um and feeling that it's one and the same is also a political statement um so i think i mean i forgot what your question was now i've just gone on a little bit of a moist but um i think yeah i think it, it's important to kind of move past the category of the worker but that does maybe a bit more specifically that has implications for what trade union strategy is right that has implications for whether or not um you're just telling people to join a union and then telling them to try and tick off x y and z to get people mobilized if your political belief is that like affect and friendship and like social relations are really key parts of the reason you're organizing they also become key parts of your strategy which means that community unionism doing the work to look at what the um the kind of so social spaces and um already existing networks of solidarity are that you can tap into rather than just trying to work with like individuals who have to work in the same site um that can be a lot more powerful and i think with a lot of the base unions and increasingly with some tuc unions as well you see that those are the campaigns that do the best um the tricky part is and i think this is where it's always important to kind of be self-critical as a movement is that a lot of the reasons that this doesn't happen is because it's very labor intensive and a lot of trade union organizers are like massively overworked and underpaid as well and so i think there has to come a point where as well as um people who are organizing um a workplace um people who are part of like a community unionism drive um just because you're working with someone or have been inspired by someone who's getting paid you have to recognize that there is a struggle there that needs support as well um and it's necessarily probably going to complicate the organizing efforts you're taking within your own site or within a neighboring site because it's going to come up against the structures that are given to you to contend with those dynamics in the first place but i don't think it's any less vital to do um i'm going to stop there but i also kind of i wanted to come back to it but i wondered if we could talk a little bit about like political blackness because i'm quite interested on um people's framings of that and ideas of that within this context of kind of um empathetic solidarity i suppose yeah i was going to ask you a similar well you pretty much um answered the question that i was going to um ask you Omar. but um uh, well, well this is what i was going to ask is uh, how trade unions and the people can, can take back control from these political parties who've kind of they might be left-leaning or fully left and they've kind of lit a lot of worker uh, just people down basically um i was going to ask you how we can kind of come back together and like uh, try and take control of the workplace and other aspects of life and working within communities and that's kind of what we're trying to do at the meeting house but even um at newington green meeting house we've, we've kind of struggled a little bit with that like um like our whole ideas like social justice and working with lots of different types of people especially within hackney and the local community and trying to provide for everyone but what we found is it is difficult because not everyone understands each other and there's, there's other things because we're an all white team as well we've got people who are queer in the team and work with a lot of outside organizations and um who are um, white so um but what we found is sometimes it can be quite difficult especially in the space itself because it's shared by so many different uh, people and everyone wants everyone wants to use it for different things whether it's exhibitions or talks or music 
Um, so that's kind of brings me around to what I was going to ask Annie is how do we kind of teach um, younger generations and, and, and what people our age, um, how to kind of um, understand each other uh, better and how can we can all work together. Um, I think I think the only way you're going to be able to do it is to um, try it out and figure it out and talk and communicate with each other. But if you've got any other ideas, um, Annie, if you're still here. Yeah, I'm still here. Um, I'll try to have a stab at um, all three that I think are directed at me. So, um, Rory, to the question about abolition, I think that um, we commonly understand abolition essentially as like abolition of police, right? Or abolition of the criminal justice system at the at like at the most. Um, but an abolitionist politic is much broader than that. Um, part of what I write about is the aspiration of the Black liberation movement in the 60s to abolish race altogether. Now, that's not something that's popular to talk about today. Um, the abolition of gender has also been at various junctures a key kind of aim of the feminist movement, right? And so when we talk about these things, I think it's important to understand that they can only be abolished because they're social constructs. But that something is a social construct doesn't mean it doesn't have a material reality to it. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have genuine consequences for people's lives. So I might want to abolish race, but at times it's necessary for me to talk about race. I want to abolish race, but it seems to be the only thing I talk about in my research, right? And so I think the work of abolition is also, in a sense, the work of creation. Even if nothing fills that vacuum, you've created a vacuum. And so um, when the most inspiring thought I've heard around the question of abolition is about the question of create, creating obsolescence. So creating a society in which policing is obsolete, creating a society which doesn't sort people on the basis of physical characteristics to the extent that race becomes obsolete, creating a society which doesn't distribute violence around questions of masculinity and femininity to the point that gender becomes obsolete. I think no one has any issue with people identifying culturally, right? Or in terms of like, or identifying sexually or identifying um, um, in, in, in terms of other characteristics that they may have. The idea is that these should not be to the exclusion of other people's expressions of their own identities and they should not be the markers or shorthands that we use for identity. And so, yeah, abolition as a work of negation, but also necessarily a work of creation is really where I'm at and thinking more imaginatively about how we prevent harm in society. And that's not just the immediate harm of quote unquote crime, but also the harms, the much bigger scale harms of systems of domination, like racialization, like gendering, like, um, like uh, 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 imperialism, et cetera. To, uh, I'm going to come to Armadeep's question last. Uh, to Stephen's question, um, I'm actually working at the moment on an exhibition for secondary school kids on migrant histories in Britain. And one thing that I always say when it comes to young people is that all of the stories we're told in our secondary curriculum and primary curriculum is about the protagonists, right? In a way, it kind of mirrors that Hollywood model of you need protagonists of history, you need the goodies and the baddies. But that actually is shirking our accountability for showing students how things come to be, um, 
how the world actually works. And so the most, I think, transformative way I found of teaching these histories, because history shows us coalitions which are completely unlikely um, and resistances which seem completely unthinkable to us today. And so if where, where I'm teaching um, younger people, I always focus on the agency of the dominated um, and the way that they navigate and change the system. You know, we get told this story of like, America and the UK were really bad places. And then some point in the 60s, each of them passed a race relations act and then all of a sudden racism started, right? But thinking about those acts as a response to resistance on the ground, which forced the hand of the dominating state, right? Um, firstly, I think it's important because it gives an accurate rendering of history. But more importantly, I think it's empowering. Even when we think about the trade union frame, a trade union would be nothing if it had zero membership right so the power of the trade union is not in the bureaucracy the power of the trade union is in the people and that's the way the state always gets us we always think that the power of the state is in the state as opposed to the power of the state being the people that it claims to speak for and so when you invest people with that power and say well actually no your your power doesn't stop when you have a vote um your power doesn't stop when you engage in civic participation directly with the state but you actually have a capacity to change things which is why i'm so um excited about the potential for the crime and sentencing bill like because for 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 the first time i think over this summer a wave of young people it's weird to talk about young people now <laughs> but a wave of young people i'm in the over 25 category now but the, <laughs> a wave of young people all of a sudden saw a clear example of the hand of the government being forced you know they had an 80 seat majority and the people on the streets change the course of that bill whether or not they implement it now the fact that they had to pause for thought is indicative of where our power can really kind of play a role in shaping our conditions and i think that under allowing people to understand that the power ultimately lies with us even in production the only reason the people in a trade union have power is because workers produce wealth and if workers didn't produce wealth and they went on strikes then everyone would be screwed right and so um, understanding um, that power is not this abstract thing which goes to the wealthy and the rich in society. I think the left needs to divest itself from talking in those terms, but understanding that an absence of understanding of our power as working class people um, is part and parcel of like the ability of the wealthy to continue to dominate. And then to the question about political blackness, I don't think there's such a thing as non-political blackness. Um, <laughs> And so one weird thing about this assertion of political blackness, and it has a, a particular history, um, but one thing about this assertion of a political blackness is that it's constantly um, reifying the idea of a biological blackness, which is obviously really unhelpful to we who want to resist the concept of race itself. But in the UK, and the UK is not the only place where this concept exists in a more explicit way. So in South Africa, the Black Consciousness Movement, Biko talks about um, Asians and Blacks joining um, and talks about how Blackness is a political frame of mind as opposed to a, a category of biological being. Um, but in the UK, the basis of the political Blackness movement is that when migrants come to Britain, they weren't conceiving of themselves as black. And this is a story you'll constantly hear from migrants. I didn't know I was black until I got here, right? And they shared experiences 
with people from other parts of the world. Walter Rodney says, if you leave London, go to some parts outside London, you're as black if you're a Pakistani as if you're a Nigerian. That's Walter Rodney, a Caribbean scholar in the 70s, right? Um, and the basis of that solidarity, again, began with coalition. Trade, well, trade unions were excluding a lot of black workers. And as a consequence of that, black workers had to organize outside of those frames. And so what you would find in places like Birmingham is um, Asian workers would be on strike and black workers would mobilize strike support. Black workers would be on strike and Asian workers would mobilize strike support. And so seeing this kind of direct connection between building coalition and therefore moving on to building community, when you go into the archives and you look at this period, no one's talking about in terms of political blackness. They don't say we're politically black, they say we're black. You can't tell the difference between who's quote unquote politically black and who's quote unquote ethnically black. And I think that's really important. And so that history of political blackness is really important, but that's not to say we have to replicate it today. If the conditions don't exist, where our experiences are shared, then I think that it's not a helpful frame. But in the same way as that's not a helpful frame, then I think that a concept of blackness, which both encapsulates myself and Jay-Z is not a helpful concept of blackness on which to resist, right? Because in a sense, that is also, like I said, a coalition um, and a coalition which is reactionary because it actually benefits bourgeois people who are able to identify into blackness, but that's a different question for a different day and three years of my PhD, so <laughs> we'll end it there. That's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that I couldn't have put it that well, um, but I, I really broadly agree with that. And it kind of, it's how I feel in many ways about, about the term queer. Um, I know a lot of conversations around the term queer have been around, can we reclaim it? Which is obviously just a, don't get me started on that conversation. But I think the utility of queer as a label, you know, isn't isn't that it it negates the differences between the ways that different people identify, but it is a statement of solidarity and in much the same way as like when someone is like screaming death threats at me on the street, they don't know if I'm bisexual or asexual or like non-binary or do you know what I mean? There's there's a legibility that is there and a shared experience that is there. And queerness as a kind of, as a, as a political tool, queerness as an organizing tool and as a statement. Um, not saying we should say politically queer, um, but just, I think in, in and of itself, it kind of brings in that sense of cohesion. It's identifying as queer for me, at least, is kind of engaging in a collective process of community construction. Because for so many of us who kind of find ourselves alienated from um, the kind of nuclear family kind of um, tra trajectory, if you like, with the kind of gendered dynamics, like social reproductive labor that are kind of inherent within that, um, in the context as well of like precarious work or precarious migration statuses being really atomizing. I think that is, there is a necessity to kind of myth make almost, uh, myth make a community into existence. And you myth make that by kind of, um, by insisting on solidarity without necessarily getting anything back. Because I, I think I share what like, if you forgive me, Annie, I'd say is a slightly small R like romantic or kind of like, um, jo joyous perception of like 
what human interaction can accomplish and of, of what humanity really kind of thirsts for, which is its own collective liberation. And so, yeah, in that sense, I think, I, yeah, it, I think it's quite analogous. Um, and I think it's, it's quite telling in that sense that when we're thinking about, um, uh, tra uh, you know, transphobes, for example, or TERFs, um, it is the emphasis on LGB, it's the emphasis on being able to kind of uh, nail down uh, and, and assume really distinct knowledge of in order to divide. Like, of course, that's how they would go about it, right? Of course, uh, someone who's intensely transphobic is going to be more likely to identify as being gay or bi or lesbian rather than as being queer. Um, because there is a sol solidarity inherent within that. And again, and really briefly as well, there's, I think Jack Halberstam writes really beautifully about the use of queer of a as a term and broadening it beyond sexual orientation, acknowledging the way that kind of sexual orientation, but also gender presentation is dictated by things like class and race as well. And looking at the ways in which therefore we might think of people who are queer um, or might kind of inhabit queer modalities, if you like, as being those who are the kind of the wonkiest, if you like, those who are most at odds with, with what is considered to be normative. So when we then think about what a queer community looks like, it's not just um, what is your sexual preference, it's like how, how queered are you from the way in which society wants you to exist? And that necessarily includes, you know, uh, sex workers, people who are criminalized for drug use, uh, uh, you know, the homeless community. It necessarily involves people into that community even if they don't necessarily like have um, a rainbow flag pinned to their bedroom wall, do you know? I just, um, sorry, I, I think you really hit the nail on the head there because uh, the way I think about the category of human itself is in, its, in essence a form of myth-making. Um, if you think about the earliest theorizations of what it meant to be human in the enlightenment period, all of these are based on thought experiments of what the state of nature might look like, right? Not on actual historical fact. And so the category of human comes about in order to find some common community to which all of these different disparate groups who are finding themselves colliding with each other um, can all belong, right? And that's why it's necessary to exclude the parts of the world that they don't want to protect, right? From that category of human. But just because that's the history of the category of human, and I have this argument with Afro-pessimists, but just because that's the history of the category of human doesn't mean that it has to be the future. We have a capacity to completely transform the meanings of terms. And Franz Fanon talks about how he sees his project as radically, like a radical humanism, radically re remaking the category of human so it could encompass everybody that exists. And I think, again, on that question of queerness, um, for me, I, I just, no other term ever sat right to understand how I moved through the world and experienced the world. But at the same time, I think that when we start stressing and obsessing over the boundaries of categories that are given to us, that are not ours for the taking, then we find ourselves in the position of being the policeman of gender, the policeman of sexuality, the policeman of race on behalf of the state. Um, and I've seen this point made before that the irony of the neoliberal era is that 
we all find ourselves in the position of protecting the very categories that cause our oppression. Um, and that's, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, but I do think, yeah, especially on the question of transphobia, one thing I've been grappling with recently is seeing transphobia and black feminist spaces, like African feminist spaces. And I'm like, yo, you know, that category of like womanhood was never yours, you know? It was never something that was afforded to you. Um, and we continue to see that in the way that black, black um, female athletes are treated at the Olympics. We continue to see that in the way that black women society are completely seen by there's a really interesting kind of dynamic there. Um, and I think that part and parcel of it is this place of insecurity. And I think if the left were at a place where it had that understanding of humanity and that discipline to be able to provide an alternative frame for what these categories might mean for us, then all of a sudden, all of that stuff falls away. You know, all the people who like lapse into conspiracy and all of that kind of stuff today, like if they were around in the 60s, they would have been in a political organization. <laughs> they would have been in the Panthers. They wouldn't be talking about the Illuminati. They would have been in the feminist movement, right? Um, and I think that's the kind of, really important point to press home that oftentimes what we offload onto others in the way that we characterize them is actually talking speaking to some kind of deficiencies of the left to be able to cut across in our language um, and in our framings and in our organization um, boundaries that are new in the neoliberal era i think i, I mean i couldn't I, I couldn't agree with that more as well and it kind of it sort of reminds me of I guess not quite an argument, but maybe, maybe a tension that I find a lot of the time um, with lots of comrades. Um, I think it's valid to talk about um, emotional labor. And I think it's valid to talk about the labor that it takes to educate, to constantly restate your position, to constantly try to kind of speak your, speak your personhood into validity or existence in the eyes of any particular person informed by their own biases and demographic right but one thing I do always struggle with is the the narrative that it's not my job to educate you um not because I disagree with it but because I think there should be like a second half to that sentence that I never hear which is it is our collective job to educate you because on the one hand like the left talks a lot about the importance of political education and I think there's a sense in which the institutions or the, the organizational capacities to do that and to reach the people that it needs to reach are so limited that we fall back on this like highly individualized, like ne neoliberal idea of like the labor that I do for someone else and that being something that I'm not receiving something valuable in return for. Um, and it kind of, you know, ties into quite, I think, a, a complex ideas of, of self-care that are tied into the self-care industrial complex anyway. Um, but yeah, it just sort of got me thinking, that I think there is that sense in which that work will always have to be done. And every day that goes by where there is not a collective effort to do that work is a, is a day in which the kind of likelihood of the, of the repercussion of that hurting the most marginalised has kind of increased. I'll say one more thing. Sorry, Rory, I know it's, we're running over time, but I, um, 
I very thoroughly disagree with the line of it's not my job to educate you. And I say this because it's not your job because you're a person of color, because you're black, because you're queer, because you're a woman. It's not your job. It's your job because you've taken on the role or understanding of yourself as an activist or an organizer and somebody who's committed to changing the world. And so if somebody is asking you a question about your politics, if somebody is coming from a space of ignorance, right? It takes a remarkable ability to dehumanize that person to understand them simply as somebody who's unsalvageable. Um, and so if you are an organizer, I spend endless time in my DMs arguing with people that I just don't have the energy to argue with, right? And that's not to say burn yourself out. It's to say that you can bow out of a conversation without making a political point about it. You cannot have the energy for a conversation without it having to be political. Um, at the end of the day, that work has to be done. That work has to be done collectively, but also if you're somebody who sees yourself as an organizer or an activist, at times will have to be done by you. I'll leave it there and I won't, I won't interrupt anymore, sorry. <laughs> Simply no need to apologize at all. It's really, really amazing. I've, I've just enjoyed hearing you both just to discuss further just then like really grateful for you to come and speak and for you to kind of brighten our evenings as the sky has decided to brighten as well um, I'm conscious of time and I just thought I would maybe give an indication that we should wrap up in case uh, unless anyone has any specific things they wanted to finish with or any final questions um, I just as a like mini response to the things you said, I I find the category of um of queer, or if it can be called a category, is is as much useful as a way of defining against something as it is defining with something. And in fact, I find the defining against to be a much more potent um tool for like anything, political organizing, uh, gender, sexuality, all of these things. Um, and I, that's, that's kind of why I find home in it is because it's a kind of practice of refusal in some way. Um, yes. Uh, does anyone have any final things or should we, should we wrap up there and go have some dinner or something? I was just going to really quickly say that um, I know I said this before and I never followed through, but um, in a couple of weeks, it'd be good to actually maybe I know, come and see the space and talk about like, maybe talk, talk a little bit about what, like, I don't know how, how it, what opportunities there are like in our own networks for using it and stuff and for kind of broadening it out. Cause I mean, just taking on, you know, taking on, on the initiative of like doing something like this is really incredible. Um, yeah. Um, well, you're always welcome at Newton Green Meeting House. Um, if I'll send you my email um, you can get in touch with me or, or Amy and we can show you around the space. Um, and we're always open to um, have people come along and do talks and be involved or, um, anything to be honest, um, like it can be exhibitions or however you want to express your message. Um, so we're really open to that. Um, I'll send you the, my email in the chat in a second. But, um, yeah, thank you uh, very much to you both. I think that's really inspiring. And I think uh, what I've really taken away from it all is the, the kind of, the, it was realizing that we're all kind of human and that it all kind of comes down to humanity and trying to understand each other even though that there's a vast history behind us and we're living in a like this world that's kind of constantly changing and it's hard to kind of educate each other and everyone's coming from different backgrounds but 
Um, I'm the same as kind of Rory, where I kind of have this kind of utopian dream where everyone loves each other and it's all fantastic, but I realize that's not going to happen um, very easily and it takes a lot of time and understanding and education. And I, I've been informed so much just like listening to both of you talk and I've, I've had so many ideas, especially with like community green and the work and what we are doing and things like that. So yeah, thank you both so much for for um, joining us today, um, it's it's been really incredible. I'll say I'll send you the email, my email address just now. Thank you so much for for having us. Thank you so much. It's been such a lovely conversation. Well, thanks for everyone for joining us today. Um, I know it's been a really sunny day. Um, we'll get this we've recorded this today, so we'll get it out on a podcast and. Adam's asked me to send it over to him as well. So I think he's going to be talking about it on Sunday as well at the meeting house. Um, but yeah, thank you, everyone. And um, have you got anything else to add, Rory? Are you all happy here? Oh, that's brilliant. Thanks so much again, everyone. Really, really appreciate you being here. Cool. Nice. All right. Cool. Cheers. Nice to meet you all. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye. Bye.